Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Harry Houdini. Now let's continue with our story about Harry Houdini. In the immediate aftermath of his mother's death, Houdini performed sporadically throughout Europe and the United States. Perhaps to ameliorate his loneliness, he and his wife moved into his brother Hardeen's home in Brooklyn. This location was also closer to the Queen's New York gravesite of his mother, where he spent a great deal of time alone. Briefly considering show business retirement, Houdini then rebounded with an 18-month tour of North America and introduced another famous and astounding feat of purported magic. Known as walking through a brick wall, he first actually purchased from a British magician the rights and secret behind what was originally performed with a steel barrier. Houdini added the more visually interesting brick and mortar wall. It was genuine, actually constructed by Union bricklayers on top of a thick rug which prevented the use of a trap door, perpendicular to the audience. A screen was then placed in front of Houdini, and another screen was placed on the other side of the wall. Within seconds, both screens were removed, Houdini now standing on the other side of the brick wall, the visual so effective that even the committee of observers seated in a semicircle in front of the stage were astonished. The trick was fundamentally simple. The rug actually facilitated the illusion. An oblong trap door running partially under the wall lowered, forming enough space for Houdini to quickly squeeze under it via the V-shape created by the rug. Because a whole host of British magicians quickly claimed to have originated the trick, he only performed the maneuver a few times, eventually passing it along to his brother, Hardeen. By 1916, Harry Houdini was in his 40s, exhausted by years of touring, the extreme demands and stress of his actual performances, and the challenges of producing ever more interesting escapes and spectacles. He was a worldwide celebrity, earned twice as much as the President of the United States, and was pronounced by Will Rogers as the greatest showman of our time by far. But he also understood that vaudeville was diminishing and would soon be replaced by much more cutting-edge technology like radio and motion pictures. Houdini had always anticipated motion pictures as an entertainment industry that had great potential, and he tried to supplement his live shows with film footage of stunts including bridge jumping and outdoor straitjacket escapes. But these attempts were not accepted by his audiences, who were used to the excitement generated by a personal and live performance. Houdini realized that he could continue with his vaudeville act or attempt to branch out into other media. After observing the huge contracts obtained by such performers as Charlie Chaplin, his path became clear, especially when two young producers offered him a deal to star in an adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 
initially trumpeted as the highest amount of money to be paid for a performer in a motion picture up to that time, Houdini became the first of many artists to be disappointed by the promise of a film producer. The film was never made, and he eventually sued and recovered a modest amount of money, but this foray only solidified Houdini's desire to stop touring and get heavily involved in film production. Houdini's distraction for performing was underlined by the undertaking of building a massive monument to his mother at her gravesite at the Jewish Machpelah Cemetery in Queens. This granite and marble memorial underlined his practical obsession with his mother and also was eventually meant as a final resting place for himself. Another reason for the ornate 1,000-ton addition to this maternal shrine a ceremony on October 1, 1916, attended by 250 guests in formal attire and Houdini in mourning garb, evidenced the seriousness of the magician's preoccupation with his mother's passing. This installation did little to lessen his compulsion surrounding his mother, a focus that remained for the rest of his life. On a more positive note, he became determined to rejuvenate the Society of American Magicians, an entity that was disorganized and ineffectual, an undertaking that eventually united more than 250 local magician societies under one national organization. In 1917, to recognize these efforts, Houdini was elected unopposed as the president of the society. 1917 also brought America's entrance into World War I, Houdini even registering for military service, but his age precluded his involvement, and instead he supported the war effort by performing in a number of free shows and benefits with such entertainment figures as Tom Mix, Sophie Tucker, and Fatty Arbuckle. In 1918, Houdini refocused on performing in front of a live audience, appearing at New York's Hippodrome, one of the world's largest theaters. It was here that he presented his remarkable disappearing elephant trick in which he seemingly made a two-ton pachyderm named Jenny vanish into thin air. Actually, this trick relied on the gigantic stage and large seating capacity, which kept most spectators from even getting a good look at the gigantic cabinet which contained the animal and its trainer. The elephant and its training companion entered the device which actually contained a powerfully spring-loaded curtain that when activated immediately obscured the elephant. As a distraction that caused most of the audience to blink, Houdini fired a loud pistol loaded with blanks. This created the illusion that the elephant had disappeared as opposed to being obscured by a curtain. The box container so large and auditorium stayed so distant from the audience that it was difficult to discern otherwise. This trick was only performed at the Hippodrome, most likely because other arenas were smaller and the illusion could not be put over if the audience had a closer vantage point. It was during this engagement at the Hippodrome that Houdini also began a mysterious affair with Charmaine London, the recently widowed wife of writer Jack London, who died in 1916. During the author's life, London and his wife socialized and interacted with Houdini on a frequent basis, and Charmaine, a bohemian and free thinker, engaged in many love affairs, even while her husband was still alive. Upon arriving in New York, she contacted the magician and went to the Hippodrome on several occasions. They began to interact by phone and letter on a daily basis, and it is clear that there was a powerful mutual attraction. Whether this relationship was actually consummated remains a mystery, and with Charmaine's return to California, 
any personal contact ceased, but Houdini continued to frequently correspond with Charmaine London. Her diaries indicate that he was too guilt-ridden over any adultery, whether contemplated or undertaken, to even consider any kind of permanent breakup of his marriage. In conjunction with Houdini's engagement at the Hippodrome, he began commuting to Yonkers, New York, to film an 18-part serial entitled The Master Mystery. Houdini plays a crime-busting treasury agent battling a sinister business entity, as well as what was probably cinema's first robot. Shown internationally, the film played to packed houses, but the business entity funding this venture eventually went bankrupt, with Houdini forced to recoup his investment by suing his co-investors, a fruitless exercise. But Houdini remained enthralled with the movie industry, and he subsequently signed a contract with the famous players Lasky Corporation, not an underfunded corporate shell, but one of the preeminent studios of the day, producing films starring the likes of Rudolph Valentino, Mary Pickford, and John Barrymore. Committed to motion pictures, Houdini and Bess relocated to rapidly growing Los Angeles in April of 1919. His first picture, The Grim Game, was released in August of 1919. It was mostly a vehicle for Houdini to perform various stunts and escapes. The most daring and alleged drop by Houdini from one biplane cockpit to another. During the filming of this maneuver, two of the biplanes became entangled and came within 200 feet of crashing before they untangled and successfully landed. Predictably, subsequent publicity from the studio and Houdini himself claimed that he was actually filmed during the near accident, but in fact a stuntman was specifically hired to film the scene. The grim game was successful enough to prompt famous players Lasky to begin work on Houdini's next film, Terror Island. The film, a South Seas treasure hunt caper with some stunts thrown in, contained plot points so absurd that audiences laughed openly. The release of the film in April of 1920 was enough to slow the momentum of Houdini's film career, and he took the opportunity to return with his wife to New York City. From there, it was on to Great Britain to fulfill various performance contracts, the illusionist no longer booking additional obligations. As a major celebrity, Houdini frequently reached out to other prominent members of their professions, and on this occasion, he contacted writer and personality Arthur Conan Doyle, sending him a book he had written that was critical of his former idol Robert Houdin. This sparked a correspondence, and eventually the two personalities met in April of 1920. Much of their interaction centered around the phenomenon of spiritualism, which was riding a wave of great interest and popularity throughout Western civilization. The fundamental tenet of this belief was that the body was composed of both physical and spiritual components, the latter able to survive physical death. Such a belief spawned attempts at contacting the dead that eventually evolved into seances and claims from spiritualists that they possessed special powers and could perform supernatural feats. This interest exploded after World War I, relatives desperate for any ability to communicate with the millions of victims of this conflict. Unbeknownst to Conan Doyle, Houdini, who understood that his own illusions revolved around altered props, sleight of hand, and unique physical prowess, was skeptical of spiritualism, especially when incorporated by some of his competitors who claimed to utilize such gifts during their performances.
Initially, Houdini politely listened to Conan Doyle's pronouncement on spiritualism and attempted to personally contradict them by performing various sleight-of-hand tricks that the uninitiated assumed could only be the result of magic. Conan Doyle still maintained that Houdini and others succeeded with supernatural gifts and that such a power definitely existed. Coincidentally, Conan Doyle's wife proclaimed herself a medium with a talent for what is known as automatic writing, a psychic ability to unconsciously produce words that actually originate from a deceased individual's spirit. Anyone familiar with Gene Leckie Conan Doyle's background would have been wary of such a claim. The second wife of the author, she carried on an adulterous affair with Conan Doyle for 10 years, while his first wife fought an eventually unsuccessful battle with tuberculosis, dying in 1906. Married shortly thereafter, Jean and Arthur had three children, and the new stepmother immediately set out to ostracize Conan Doyle's two children from his first marriage. His oldest son, Kingsley, was packed off to Eton, and his daughter was sent to Dresden, ostensibly to study opera and subsequently forbidden to return home, even for Christmas. When her husband began to support spiritualism as an important universal movement, Many of the messages Jean transcribed from the spirit world contained approval of Conan Doyle's efforts and acknowledgement of her critical role. Through the recommendations of the Conan Doyles, Houdini sought out some of the most acclaimed mediums in Britain and sat through numerous seances and sittings. These observations only convinced him that these individuals were conmen and fakes, merely interested in exploiting the gullible for money. Conan Doyle would have none of it, even producing photos that he claimed were actual fairies in a British forest. This fundamental disagreement came to a head in June of 1922. Conan Doyle and his wife were touring the U.S., promoting his various literary works and discussing his spiritual beliefs. After Houdini entertained the couple in New York, he was invited to spend time in Atlantic City with the Conan Doyles and their young family. During this visit, a seance focusing on communicating with Houdini's deceased mother was arranged, a process that he subsequently specifically described. Lady Conan Doyle quickly appeared to be gripped by some external force. Her hand began to beat on the table in response to her questions, especially when she asked if the spirit present was Houdini's mother. Suddenly, Lady Conan Doyle began rapidly writing page after page, her husband tearing these from a pad and handing them to Houdini. Eventually, she filled 15 pages with alleged communication from Cecilia Weiss. Outwardly, Houdini was grateful to the couple, continuing to be cordial and non-confrontational. But after ruminating on the various statements purportedly from his mother, he came to the conclusion that this was just another hoax and the entire spiritual movement was nonsense. One major problem with Lady Conan Doyle's transcription, written in grammatically perfect English, was that Houdini's mother spoke mostly Yiddish and German. While he continued corresponding with Conan Doyle, Houdini eventually wrote a newspaper column emphatically stating that his experience with mediums and seances only convinced him that such a communication with the dead was impossible. He also wrote directly to Conan Doyle, telling him of his skepticism over the recent Atlantic City incident and adding specifics as to why the communications were not credible. 
Conan Doyle responded privately, attempting to rationalize such misgivings with general explanations. But by March of 1923, this dispute spilled publicly into the pages of the New York Times, the two men exchanging letters critical of each other. When Conan Doyle arrived in New York in advance of a Western U.S. lecture tour, the papers fanned the flames of a budding controversy, which by the time he hit Denver was a front-page story. By the end of his tour, the two men had stopped exchanging letters and would never see each other again. Always competitive, Houdini now decided to spend a great deal of energy debunking spiritualists and mediums whenever possible, most likely to demonstrate to Conan Doyle a professional superiority. Houdini began his own lecture tour in February of 1924, discoursing on deception on the part of mediums and psychics. Suddenly, he was America's foremost authority and leading investigator of psychic phenomena. He methodically debunked several spiritualists, and his most publicized interaction involved his dispute with the medium known as Marjorie, a.k.a. Mina Crandon. Ms. Crandon was unusual for a psychic in that she came from a patrician Boston background, was married to a surgeon, and accepted no compensation for her seances. When the Scientific American publication offered a prize of $2,500 to any person who could offer irrefutable proof of the ability to produce an example of psychic phenomena, Marjorie and her husband, L.G. Crandon, agreed to sit before a Scientific American committee of examiners that included Houdini. While the skepticism of spiritualism was well known, others on the committee were not as strident, and a lengthy process ensued in which Scientific American's analysis concerning Marjorie, her methods and evidence provided, were termed officially inconclusive. Although he was bound during the many months of this examination to remain publicly silent, once the results were formally released, Houdini was free to offer his opinion publicly which he did in the form of a November 1924 40-page pamphlet entitled Houdini Exposes the Tricks Used by the Boston Medium Marjorie. He specifically included his allegations concerning Mina Crandon during his lecture tours, which dealt chiefly with whether spiritualism and psychic phenomena were hoaxes. Many of the higher-profile proponents of the spiritualist movement rose to Mina Crandon's defense, Frequently academic intellectuals, they dismissed Houdini and newspaper print as ignorant and an itinerant paid magician. More ominously, vaguely attributed statements from the spiritualist community indicated that it was clear that Houdini had only a year to live. Even some members of the Scientific American Committee that sat in judgment of Marjorie were critical of Houdini, labeling him as arrogantly close-minded and believing himself to be much more knowledgeable than his peers. That this criticism emanated from the Boston Brahmin academic establishment only served to enrage Houdini, his lack of any formal education a lifetime source of insecurity. In response, he offered a wager to any of his critics that he would put up a year of their salary if he could lock them handcuffed in a trunk and toss them in the Charles River. The only requirement to collect was that they escaped. Not content with this rhetorical sword fighting, Houdini on December 30th brought $10,000 in bonds to Boston Symphony Hall and offered it as an inducement to Marjorie to present herself by early January, and if she was able to provide any visible proof of the veracity of her scientific American examination, she could keep the money. On January 2nd and 3rd, 
It was announced that Houdini would be present at Symphony Hall to witness Marjorie's acceptance of his challenge, or in her absence, he would provide a a thorough expose of her fraudulent methods. Marjorie did not turn up, and Houdini spent two hours before a packed house, enthusiastically exposing the medium's various devious techniques. While the crowd was entertained, the various camps debating spiritualism remained entrenched. Arthur Conan Doyle going so far in a newspaper article as to label Houdini as a completely unqualified psychic investigator. He also preposterously claimed that Houdini's mother, impossibly literate 15 pages of automatic writing, were the result of her becoming educated and literate in the afterlife. Houdini's theoretical opponents did nothing to stop his crusade against what he considered to be fakes and charlatans. His $10,000 offer to Marjorie became a permanent part of his lecture tours and occasional performances, but there were no takers. Most intimidated by Houdini's high public profile and obvious vast knowledge of the scams employed by alleged psychics the world over. Houdini's film career ended voluntarily in 1923 when he shut down his own New York movie production company after a few more self-produced films generated what he himself termed as minimal profits not worth the hassle. But he did reach the pinnacle of New York's theatrical domain when he appeared at Broadway's Schubert Theater in late 1925, debuting a two-and-a-half-hour show split into three distinct acts, simply entitled Houdini. The first featured typical sleight-of-hand and card tricks that could only be described as magic. Act two reprised the most famous escapes and stunts, including metamorphosis, the milk can escape, needle swallowing, and the water torture cell. Act 3 was entitled, Do the Dead Come Back?, a discussion that included expose of alleged psychic phenomena. After a lengthy run in New York, the show toured nationally for nine months, including eight weeks in Chicago. Houdini also continued his public criticism of spiritualism, actually going so far as testifying in front of a congressional committee that was considering legislation to ban fortune-telling and other related quackery, legislation that eventually went nowhere due to First Amendment concerns. Houdini's last hurrah as an illusionist was prompted by the spectacular New York theatrical performance of an Egyptian self-proclaimed Muslim ascetic named Rahman Bey. Bay stuck needles through his cheeks and lips, had rocks placed on his abdomen, and broken with hammers, and claimed he could control his pulse through self-hypnosis. But what caught Houdini's attention was when Bay was placed inside of a coffin, the lid nailed shut, and the container buried in sand. Claiming that he was aided by placing himself in a cataleptic trance, the performer stayed buried for as long as eight minutes, and sometimes even longer. Houdini proclaimed all of these theatrics, quote, a lot of bunk, unquote, and asserted that he would stay in the very same coffin for as long as Bay could and even longer. This egocentric boast became problematic when the Egyptian was sealed in the coffin and stayed underwater in a New York swimming pool for an hour. Undaunted, Houdini began to privately train to meet the challenge, first in the back room of a New York coffin company and then submerged in a tank his casket hermetically sealed. Both times he was able to remain in the container for an hour and ten minutes. On August 5, 1926, Houdini, confident that he could publicly replicate Bay's feet and then some, 
entered the recently built Manhattan Hotel Shelton. Hotel management claimed their swimming pool to be among the most magnificent in the country. In the corner of this pool lay a six by five by two by two foot steel coffin. 100 especially invited spectators, including prominent journalist Walter Lippmann and Adolph Oakes, watched as Houdini, in swim trunks and T-shirt, was placed in the coffin and workmen began soldering the lid. The casket had two wires extruding from it, one attached to a bell that Houdini could ring if he needed to surface, the other to a battery-powered telephone so he could communicate to an assistant at all times. Placed in the swimming pool, eight men in bathing suits had to actually sit on the coffin to keep it submerged. Unfortunately, the temperature in the swimming pool area was much warmer than in Houdini's trial runs, and the coffin's interior temperature quickly approached 100 degrees. At 50 minutes, Houdini's breathing became labored, and informed by telephone exactly how much time had transpired, he wondered if he could make it. He held on until 60 minutes elapsed, and then, when informed that he had achieved his goal, he decided to stay submerged. At 1 hour 12 minutes, he then told his assistant that he would try for 1 hour 15 minutes. It was only at 1 hour 28 minutes, as he became drowsy and began hallucinating yellow lights, that Houdini asked to be raised to the surface. Although extremely pale, with high blood pressure, he had substantially exceeded Bay's record by half an hour the accomplishment described on the subsequent front page of the New York Times. This was essentially Houdini's only public 1925 activity until he went back on the road with his eponymous theatrical production. But early on tour in Albany, Houdini suffered an uncharacteristic onstage injury when, during the water torture cell trick, cables to the stocks became dislocated and his ankle was broken. Only days into his lengthy engagement, Houdini pressed on, despite the pain, his only concession omitting the water torture cell, part of the show. He performed in Schenectady, New York, before heading for five days of shows at Montreal's Princess Theatre, running from October 18th to the 22nd. Invited by the head of the psychology department at McGill University, the magician lectured a large crowd of students at the school on the afternoon of October 19th. It is maintained by some Houdini biographers that at this lecture, Houdini boasted for the first time of his ability to withstand punches to his abdomen, an assertion that might explain subsequent events. At this lecture, a McGill art student named Samuel Smilovitz composed a sketch of Houdini, which the illusionist autographed, subsequently inviting Smilovitz to sketch him again at the performer's dressing room at the Princess Theatre. Smilovitz, accompanied by another student, Jacques Price, took Houdini up on his offer, the two men arriving at the Princess on October 22nd at about 11.15 a.m. The three chatted amiably, Houdini reclining on a small couch while reading his fan mail. Subsequently, another student, J. Gordon Whitehead, entered the small 8x10 room, ushered in by a theater secretary. Whitehead began to dominate the conversation, asking Houdini about miracles in the Bible, a topic that Houdini always avoided and on this occasion deflected. According to a legal deposition given by Smilovitz, Whitehead then asked if it was true that Houdini could withstand punches to his stomach and followed up with a request to implement a demonstration of this technique. 
After Houdini accepted the challenge, but before he could rise and fully prepare himself, Whitehead stood over him and punched him forcibly four or five times, so hard that Price told him to stop, even before Houdini held up his hand and quietly said, That will do. Although disturbing, Whitehead's behavior was not enough to break up the conversation, Smilovitz finishing his drawing, and a discussion continuing until about 1.30 p.m. The three students then departed, Houdini accepting the drawing and graciously telling Smilovitz that he would write to him at the university. By showtime that evening, the performer was in such pain that he had to lie down during intermissions a major concession for someone with Houdini's incredible pain tolerance. After the show, he was unable to dress himself. And when the Houdini entourage got on the train to the next stop on the tour, Detroit, a telegram was sent ahead requesting that a doctor be present when the magician arrived. Upon reaching his destination, it was quickly determined that Houdini's temperature was 102 degrees and he had all the symptoms of acute appendicitis. Urged to check himself into a hospital, he instead insisted on appearing that night as scheduled at the Garrick Theater, successfully completing his performance. By then, his temperature was 104 degrees and his appendix was most likely burst. Although urged by a doctor at his hotel to enter the hospital, it was not until 3 p.m. the next day that an operation was performed to remove the ruptured appendix, a condition that causes excruciating pain. Unfortunately, Houdini's appendicitis was so advanced that peritonitis, an internal infection of the stomach, was already widespread. Initially, his prognosis seemed to improve and his fever lessened, but eventually, after several positive developments, his condition worsened. A second unsuccessful operation was performed, and Houdini was unable to survive. He passed away in Detroit's Grace Hospital on October 31, 1926 at approximately 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Although a formal investigation occurred, Whitehead was never charged with any crime. The incident ruled an unfortunate accident, perhaps because such a ruling entitled Bess Houdini to double indemnity on Houdini's life insurance policy. Harry Houdini's funeral at a large Elks Club auditorium near Times Square was held on November 4th. By then, controversy was already swirling around the circumstances of Houdini's demise. The punches thrown in the Montreal dressing room already attributed as the cause of death by Detroit hospital physicians. But individuals interviewed in Montreal, including the manager of the Princess Theater, indicated that Houdini was not himself even before this incident. Samuel Smilovitz, commenting in a deposition conducted during the investigation, mentioned that upon seeing Houdini at McGill, he was surprised that instead of a strapping, vivacious entertainer, he was confronted by a sunken-eyed, exhausted older man who seemed practically sickly. Perhaps Harry Houdini was already in the grips of appendicitis that he would have ignored, the punches either immaterial or merely exacerbating a pre-existing condition. The controversy around this incident has never been resolved. Over 1,500 people gathered for Houdini's Elks Club funeral with many more lining the streets outside. A procession of 50 automobiles conveyed his casket to the family burial plot at Machpelah Cemetery, where he was buried next to his mother, father, and other family members. As Houdini requested, a collection of his mother's letters were used to cradle his head. 
He willed his considerable inventory of props and theatrical devices to his brother, Dash Hardine, but requested that they be destroyed upon his sibling's death. Instead, Hardeen's estate sold them to collectors, and eventually some of these artifacts are either on display in museums or owned by personalities like magician David Copperfield. Houdini's interest in spiritualism and the afterlife was such that he made a pact with his wife that whoever preceded the other in death, that individual would attempt to contact the other in some manner. Bess Houdini, understanding the immense publicity value of such an event, held an annual seance on Halloween to attempt to communicate with her husband's spirit. A prearranged sentence communicated by her dead husband would authenticate any such interaction. But in 1936, the final seance was held on the roof of Hollywood's Knickerbocker Hotel, and Bess ceased this practice, commenting that 10 years was long enough for her husband to get in touch. She spent most of the rest of her life living in Los Angeles, appearing at magic conventions, and essentially enjoying celebrity as Houdini's widow. Unlike Houdini, who was a teetotaler, Bess was a heavy drinker and smoker, which may have contributed to her death from a heart attack, age 67, in 1943. Although it is not completely clear why, her Catholic religion prompted her family to bury her in New York's Catholic Gate of Heaven Cemetery, as opposed to nearby her husband in the Jewish Machpelah burial grounds. Bess encouraged others to continue the annual Halloween seance tradition, attempting to communicate with her husband's spirit. Beginning the year after his death, professional magicians, fans, and other devotees of Houdini gathered at his grave to perform a formal ceremony and attempt to make a connection. Over time, the number of adherents dwindled, the cemetery went bankrupt, and in 1996, the burial grounds operator announced that Machpelah would be closed on Halloween due to vandalism, both to Houdini's grave and other parts of the cemetery. This included the smashing with sledgehammers of granite benches embedded in Houdini's monument and the repeated theft of a marble reproduction of the magician's head, faithfully replaced by his cadre of followers who still fund the upkeep of the site. Because his final resting place is no longer an option, annual official seances are conducted on Halloween in a location with some spiritual or biographical relevance, including Salem, Massachusetts, New York, New York, and San Francisco, California. But... Almost 100 years after his death, there is still no word or communication from the unique and remarkable individual who called himself Harry Houdini. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Harry Houdini. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Houdini, The Career of Eric Weiss by Kenneth Silverman and The Secret Life of Houdini by William Kalush and Larry Sloman. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, some very famous people, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, 
and also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.